1: Father, we bow before you uh, today, mindful of uh, your grace and kindness to us in the midst of a a world really just ripped apart and so often um, just hurting through sin. Uh, We think about the shooting in that school and feel so very sad about it. We look to you to bring healing and comfort even uh, within our own church. I think about Tom Knight as he lost his son uh, a few days ago uh, to cancer. and just pray comfort for him and for the whole family. And Lord, as we look tonight at uh, Romans 7, we're mindful again of the devastating effect and the cost of sin, of Adam's sin and really of all sin in every generation and really every day. And so we look to you, Lord. We know there is one and only one salvation and Savior, and that is Christ. And so help us to, uh, to understand this marvelous chapter and be able to glorify you by putting sin to death by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right. Uh, so you have the handout. It is different from last week's. Um, if you uh, if you look at it, and I would love somebody uh, to begin by reading the text we're looking at tonight, um, Romans seven thirteen through twenty five. As we uh, we walk through that, Romans seven thirteen through twenty five. All right. Thank you. Um, so uh, we're going to just really walk through this tonight and try to address it. Um, And uh, as we do, we we are seeing the intricacies of human personality and of sin, uh, the depths of it. I think every Christian can say to some degree as you read this, you know, I really think this is talking about me. The chapter uh, probes deeply the psychology of the human nature. Who am I really? Why do I struggle with things that I actually hate? Why do I keep doing or making the same mistakes over and over again? Uh, psychological terms going on, the language of the inner being. It's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. The battle with indwelling sin is uh, referred to there. My inner being, I delight in God's law. So there's a deep probing of the human psyche, the human soul here, long before Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung was born. You know, if you look at it, I think uh, psychology is the science of the soul, really, literally. If you look literalistically at what that word means, Study of the soul. If the Bible is not sufficient for that, what is it sufficient for, friends? And this is one of the most psychologically insightful chapters there is in the whole Bible. There's a deep probing of our inner being here. All right, this is a very important thing to work out. We're dealing with the issue of sin in the life of a justified person, sin in the life of a Christian, somebody who's genuinely born again. So we come to faith in Christ through simple faith in Christ, is we're justified by faith, not by works. We are justified by Christ's complete, perfect triumph over sin, not ours. Thief on the cross didn't achieve anything in that battle. What did he do? Uh, he acknowledged that it was his own crimes that had led him to that point. He was getting what he deserved, he said. He had nothing righteous to offer, and yet Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Perfect picture of justification by faith alone apart from works. But most of us aren't the thief on the cross coming to saving faith minutes before we die. We actually often have years to live in this world. So now what do we do with the problem of sin in the life of a genuine Christian? That's what Romans 6 through 8 is about. And so Romans 7 probes that question. This is an important topic to work out. How you resolve this will determine a lot about how you view the gospel in your daily life. And it brings you to the issue of the very significant issue of sin in your life. What's actually going on? How does it really stand between you and God? It is reasonable for us to try as best we can to make certain that we genuinely are in Christ. We should test ourselves to be certain that we're in Christ. Christ is in us unless we fail the test, as Paul says in Corinthians. So it's reasonable for us to make our calling and election sure and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So this is as practical as it gets. What should you do about the struggle you have with sin? Now recently, preaching through Mark, I came across you know this passage or came into this passage and read it. Someone read it uh, for us, if you would, Mark 9, 43-48. You know, Jesus taught the same kind of thing in the Sermon on the Mount, linking it to the problems of sinful anger and uh, lust. You know, you've heard that it was said, uh, you shall not murder. Uh, But if you're even angry with your brother, you're in danger of the fire of hell. And you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say that if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And then he says, if your right eye cause you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand cause you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. So you could just stop as you're reading the Sermon on the Mount or this passage here in Mark 9 and say, wait, now, are you saying that my lust or my sinful anger can actually send my soul to hell? That seems to be what Jesus is saying. You have to fight sin. But Then you're like, well... I don't just struggle with that sin or two sins, I struggle with lots of sins. What then? How do I understand this? How do I fight sin as a justified person, as a genuine Christian? So Romans 7 then steps up. And this chapter resonates. Doesn't it resonate with your experience uh, to the very core? How many of you could say this? I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Any of you here able to resonate with that? If you're not, please talk to me afterwards. I want to know you, or you're a liar, I guess. You know, you're know you deceiving yourself. It's like, this is our story. I wish it weren't. I wish it weren't. But when you look at the words of, of, of uh, Romans 7.15, you're like, that's basically insanity. We're saying, I'm insane, I'm irrational, I'm, I'm a person who doesn't understand myself. I can't give an explanation for it. Fundamentally, I mean, from, from, from this passage, Romans seven fifteen, but also from other places, like, for example, Daniel chapter four, where God strikes Nebuchadnezzar with a mental illness and he thinks he's a cow, remember? And he's eating grass. He's insane. I mean clinically insane. And then after 7 years God touches him and his sanity is restored he said then I praise the God of heaven. Right? So that to me plus this Romans 7:15 tells me sin is insanity. That's it. It's being sick in your mind. How must we look to the holy angels, honestly? What do you think we look like? You folks are crazy. First of all, that you think you can take on God and win. But even just the way you live, the way you are with each other, you're just a bunch of crazy people. But they don't say that because they know that God's working out salvation. They've seen the redeemed get up to heaven and be very different in heaven than they ever were on earth. Amen? Hallelujah. So they've seen what's happening and so they're patient and they trust God. But at the same point, we must look crazy to them. So, rightly understanding Romans 7 will go a long way to help you understand who you are in Christ and in the world. Now, day after day, struggling with sin. David Dockery put it this way, proclamation of a gospel which only promises pardon, peace, and power will result in converts who sooner or later will become disillusioned or deceitful about their actual Christian experience. That's a powerful quote, isn't it? If we only give the triumphalistic view of the gospel, David Dockery says you're going to end up with a bunch of people who are depressed and disillusioned or they're just deceitful. They're not honest about it. Now, what do you think about that quote? Why would you say that's true? Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, the basic issue of David Dockery's quote is sin in the life of a genuine Christian. And as that wears on, if you don't have a right understanding of Romans 7, you're going to, look at the list. You're going to be disillusioned or deceitful, you know? And the, the real answer is to say, look, Paul was, Paul was pretty honest about his struggles. He was pretty honest. And so therefore, you know, I'm flying my flag. I believe this is Paul speaking as a genuinely born-again, even mature Christian, all right? Because there are various options, like Paul's talking as an unregenerate person. Paul's, Paul's speaking as a moralistic Jew, Paul's speaking as a very immature, unformed Christian, or he's speaking as a mature Christian who struggles with sin. Those are your options. And for me, I think it's the fourth, and therefore the most helpful. You can be a mature Christian and still say, I do not understand what I do. For what I hate, I do. And what I yearn to do, I do not do. So that's important. Now, I want to go off on a case study right now. I heard about it a number of years ago as I was reading... um, Uh, J.I. Packer's uh, book on uh, sanctification. And he was talking about how, and I think this is the contribution of the Puritan movement more than anything else, is their understanding of the Christian life, the journey after conversion to the Celestial City and Pilgrim's Progress, or the various works that Owen did on mortification and on, on temptation and all that and many Puritans uh, just do great, great work on sanctification. It's their, it's their, their, their number one contribution, I think. Whereas the Baptist's number one contribution is understanding of the local church as made up of regenerate people. Regenerate church membership, I would say, is the Baptist's number one contribution. Um, so I think that's what the Puritans did best. But there are other options, there are other, you know, other approaches to sanctification. And J.I. Packer bumped into one early in his Christian life that almost led him to to be insane, all right? And it's the Keswick theology, Keswick sanctification, um, which is summed up in a phrase that's pretty famous, but most people don't know It comes from the Keswick movement, let go and let God. That's their approach to sanctification, let go and let God. Or uh, more broadly, full consecration leading to perfection, So the backdrop of the Keswick movement is Wesleyan perfectionism and the concept that it is possible as an act of your will to become perfect in this life, Wesleyan perfectionism. And now they do that by a number of ways, Wesleyan perfectionism, Methodist perfectionism, they do it by reducing sin to a voluntary transgression of a known law of God. All right, so that's a reduction of sin, all right, you you can't, you know, ignorance of the law is an excuse in that case, but the known laws, voluntary transgression of a known law of God, you can get to the point where you just don't do that anymore. That's Wesleyan perfectionism. Well, the Keswick movement came along and kind of developed it, um, variations on a theme and and um, kind of developed it. So um, I, I'm giving you some work that Andy Nacelli did. He did on one of his two PhDs. The guy has two PhDs. I don't know who has time for that. How many two PhD peoples do you know, especially in Christian studies? You know, it's like, When you get done with one of those, you're like, okay, that's enough. Um, so then you move on. At any rate, uh, one of them was on Keswick theology. Um, and, but J.I. Packer is uh, a case study. J.I. Packer wrote the book Knowing God. He's just a, you know, just a very important Christian leader of the, of the 20th century, evangelical leader of the 20th century, early 21st century. Anyway, when J.I. Packer was a teen, he was struggling with sin and wondering about his own salvation. He came across Keswick theology and tried to live up to it. It nearly drove him insane. What is it? What are we talking about? Well, it gets its name from an annual week-long Christian conference in the Lakes District in Northern England, Keswick, the Keswick uh, town. There was a conference up there that would go on for a week, year after year, annual. All right, based on, distinguished by the belief that the majority of Christians are living in defeat because of sin, the majority of Christians are, And the secret to living the victorious Christian life is consecration followed by spirit filling, filling, a decisive moment of spirit filling resulting in instantaneous Christian perfection. That's the Keswick teaching. The cure to the power of the law of indwelling sin for Christians living the defeated life is a crisis of sanctification, a momentary crisis which occurs in a moment of full consecration to God, that's surrender, you're surrendering yourself fully to God, that's let go, okay? And then faith, let God, all right? So you're getting out of, so if there's any striving in the Christian life, you're you're barking up the wrong tree. You're doing it in your own flesh. There should be to some degree in the Keswick approach an effortless sanctification kind of a, a decisive moment, a second moment after conversion, a second moment of grace. So, uh, Andy Nacelli came up with a book that he wanted to write, he never wrote it, but here's his 35-word title. Ready? Let Go and Let God, question mark, examining a popular view of Christian living or why a quick fix to your struggle with sin will not result in A victorious life, higher life, deeper life, more abundant life, or any other thing other than a misguided, frustrated, disillusioned, and or destroyed life. So that's the book he wants to write about this whole thing. And you've probably heard about that, the higher life, the deeper life, all of that. That's all kind of Keswick talk, especially if it's linked to this decisive moment when from then on you didn't struggle. And if you're struggling, you haven't consecrated yet. You haven't fully consecrated. Well, imagine being a teenage Jay Packer, coming across this stuff, trying to find out honestly if you're born again or not. That's what's hanging in the balance. Am I a Christian or not? And you're looking at your performance, you're looking at your struggles with sin, and you're just you're not sure actually. And the whole thing's hanging in the balance for how well you put sin to death, how well you 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 live. The reality of Keswick Theology's passivity program and its announced expectations, plus its insistence that any failure to find complete victory is entirely your fault, makes it very destructive. J. Packer felt like, quote, a poor drug addict, desperately, unsuccessfully, and painfully trying to walk through a brick wall. The explanation for his struggle, according to Keswick Theology, was his unwillingness to pay the entry fee, that is, not fully consecrating himself. So all he could do is repeatedly re-consecrate himself. Imagine you're trying this and then you have a lapse into sin one way or another and you're like, I guess I didn't do it. Whatever I did four days ago didn't take. It didn't work. All right, what are you going to do this time? Do that same thing better. You realize how destructive this is? How, how, how depressing this is? Anyway, just walking through his testimony here. Uh, he repeatedly reconsecrated himself, scraping the inside of his psyche till it was bruised and sore in order to track down still unyielded things by which the blessing was perhaps being blocked. His confusion, frustration, and pain grew as he kept missing the bus. The pursuit was as futile as chasing a will o' the wisp. He felt like a burned child who dreads the fire, hatred of the cruel and tormenting unrealities of overheated holiness teaching that remains in his heart To this day, Packer concludes that Keswick's message is depressing because it fails to eradicate any of the believer's sin, that it's delusive because it offers a greater measure of deliverance from sin than Scripture anywhere promises or the apostles themselves ever attained. This cannot but lead to either self-deception in the case of those who profess to have entered into this blessing or disillusionment and despair in the case of those who seek it but fail to find it. Packer's ultimate solution was a right understanding of the lifelong battle all Christians have with indwelling sin. Well, where do we get that idea? Romans 7. See, if, you're, if you come to the conclusion that Paul's writing as a mature Christian who battles with sin, then I think at that point it's on. Now you understand. And Now you can move from Romans seven on to Romans eight to understand the power of the Holy Spirit to put sin to death, and that's it ends on. And you know you're going to fight this the rest of your life. There's no effortless. It's not effortless, not at all. It's hard. And if you expect it, then you can fight. And then you know you're Christian. You're forgiven, but you, you're fighting too. And so therefore, that's what I'm teaching, preaching all the time: justification, sanctification, all the time. Just understanding forgiveness comes by faith always, never by works. A sense of forgiveness always by faith. Go to the cross, trust Jesus, like the thief on the cross. That's what forgiveness is. But actual life transformation comes through this process. This is the very thing we're talking about, Romans 6, 7, and 8, all of this. If you do that Keswick thing, it's like you're constantly looking for that moment that hasn't happened for you yet. Apparently, you haven't let go enough. You're not letting God enough, and that's hard. All right, so that's what he's saying. It's vital for us to understand the ongoing struggle with indwelling sin and deal with it properly. What is that? Romans 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're free from law's condemning power. You're forgiven. That's what forgiveness is, right? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Set me free from the law, at least in its condemning power. I mean, at least that much we know. Or in any sense that you're on your own, with the law, it's you and the law and God's gonna see how you do. That is the very thing that cannot be. You cannot be sanctified that way. You and the law, it's not gonna win. It's not gonna work. I think that's what Romans 7 is all about. You and the law alone, you lose. You cannot be sanctified that way. All right, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Four, what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of the flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. See that? We can live the moral law. Not the ceremonial law, circumcision, all It's a different matter. Food, the food, dietary regulations, fulfilled. That's not what we're talking about. But there is a law still abiding, still binding on Christians. Summed up by Jesus. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbors yourself. And then in particularities. All right, In marriage, in relationship with the state, relationship with neighbors, work, all of that. Lots of laws. You can do that by the power of the Spirit. That's what he's saying. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then later, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So that's the key. The law's still there, it's holy, righteous, and good. Precepts are still there, they're holy, righteous, and good. But you, on your own, trying to do it, will never succeed, never. But you have the Spirit, that's what we're getting to. Be fully convinced then that all your sins are forgiven by simple faith in Christ, and be constantly active in killing sin, all sin, wherever you find it in your life by the power of the Spirit. That right there, dear friends, is the healthy Christian life. Do you see it? That little paragraph there at the end. Be fully convinced that all your sins are forgiven by simple faith in Christ, and be constantly active in killing all the sin you ever see in your life, wherever the Holy Spirit shows it to you, by the power of the Spirit. That also is why you come to Bible studies on Wednesday nights, why you go to church on Sundays, why you're in other Christian fellowships, why you read good books, why you have quiet times, so you can do this. And then the alternative is to just be self-deceptive. It's like, well, that, that didn't happen, or I didn't do that, or whatever. And it's like, it's so despairing, because what's hanging in the balance is, am I a Christian or not? And that's so sad. It becomes works. It just reminds me of Luther constantly going into Staupitz, confessing sin every two hours. I mean, it's, it ends up that same kind of life. What we don't realize, what most of us don't realize is how huge Keswick is in the evangelical movement. I mean, Amy Carmichael, Hudson Taylor, Andrew Murray, these are all Keswick things. You know, And they're not heretics, but it's just there's that let go and let God theology, it's in there. DTS, Dallas, there's a lot of Ke- Keswick stuff with Dallas, Ryrie Study Bible, it's, it's woven in there. And look, I'm not some conspiracy theorist and all that, I'm just telling you history here. All right, so wherein there is this second blessing, two categories of Christians, the, the defeated Christian and the victorious Christian, wherever you see that, stick a flag, that's a problem. The other stuff they're gonna teach rightly on, missions and other things, they're fine there, but, you know, so, all right. So let's walk through the, uh, the actual text now, Romans 7, 13 through 25. Uh, we've already kind of covered, is Paul speaking for himself? I've given you my, my uh, sense of why there's a problem, why it goes both ways, why some people say this can't be Paul speaking as a Christian. Why? Because he calls himself a slave to sin. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Why is that a problem? Because of 6, 14. 6, 14 says that we're not slaves to sin. <laughs> and 6, 17 and 18 says effectively the same thing. All right, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, what does that tell you? <laughs> what do you get out of that? Okay, I'm not a slave to sin anymore. You wholeheartedly obeyed that form of teaching to which you entrusted, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. That's telling me I'm not a slave to sin anymore. Then who is this talking to me now a chapter later? who says, I am sold as a slave to sin. It just seems mathematical that Paul can't be speaking as a Christian there. But it's not that simple. And the more you read, then you start to understand there's a different kind of slavery and a different kind of law that he's dealing with here that we must, and if we're honest, say, yeah, I see that going on in my life. I understand, it's just different uh, verbiage. All right, on the other side that Paul is speaking as a Christian is, first of all, Uh, his genuine delight in the law, all right? He has a genuine delight in the law. He he articulates it several times in this passage. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. No non-Christian's gonna say that. Non-Christians don't delight in God's law. I mean, think about delight in the law as Jesus summed it up. The law is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Imagine someone saying genuinely to you, I love that. Does that sound like a non-Christian to you? I, I love I love my neighbor as myself, or at least I want to. I think it's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Look, I already know that that's not true because Romans 8, 7 says, the sinful mind, uh, the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot because it hates it. So therefore, uh, whoever is talking in Romans seven twenty two, is not the mind controlled by the flesh or the mind of the flesh the hostile to God. So who is it, what are we talking about Hence the problem. Proof number two is Paul's kind of couching of the terms. He stops himself kind of midway like a, like a parenthesis or a comma, uh, where he says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh. Why does he have to do that? Why does he say, let me be clear what I'm talking about? Sounds like he's talking like somebody who is making a distinction between him and his flesh. Same thing in verse 25. I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the flesh, a slave to the uh, law of sin. So again, he seems like he's talking about somebody who has had a radical change in his life. And that's the ultimate uh, proof for me is the third uh, version. Paul's decisive break with sin shown no longer I. 717, as it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. That's just it. I don't think a non-Christian can say that. All right? Non-Christian cannot say that. And again, 720. Now, if I do what I do not uh, want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. This is, this is the, uh, the implications of the 2 Corinthians 517 teaching that we're new creation's in Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. It's, you know, old is gone, new has come. And the most important old new issue is me and sin. There's a decisive break made between me and sin. I'm set free from it. I'm, I'm in a different place. Parenthetically, in my heaven book, that's exactly, its, I take this to its nth degree, to its infinite conclusion, of how free you will be when you get to heaven to have your story told. To have your story told. Because you, you'll say, it is not who I am. It is who I was, but it is not who I am. I am a perfectly conformed to Christ person at this point. I'm talking heaven now. You will be completely conformed to Christ, and you will have no pride in the matter, and you will have complete courage and freedom to have your story told the way you lived it actually on earth, for the glory of God. So that's why I do believe not in heavenly amnesia or heavenly memory wipe, but heavenly truth-telling, right? But like I've said before, if you don't want something told for all eternity in heaven, then don't do it, all right, just a thought, all right? (laughs) So that's a motivation. Paul says, I strive to keep my conscience clear, so it's a motivation for holiness. At any rate, I'm just saying this decisive break in Romans 7 between me and my sin will be consummated in heaven so that I will say that is not who I am. I hate sin the way God does. Does that make sense? So Paul here, I think, is definitely speaking as a Christian. Not an immature Christian or a defeated Christian or whatever, but as a Christian who's writing the book of Romans. What do you say? I don't think that's a defeated pre-Kesuk Christian. I think anybody who's writing Romans is doing well in his Christian life. What are your thoughts? Do you agree? I think he's doing well. He's saying, look, this is who I am. I struggle with sin. All right, so I think it's a Christian. Therefore, therefore, this helps us. We we can be helped by it. All right, the way, way the structure works, three cycles of lamentation. They all follow the same pattern, condition, conflict, and cause. First, Paul describes his condition. Secondly, he describes the resulting conflict because of that condition. And third, he goes to the root cause. What is the condition? He's mixed. He's a mixed being. Now he says this more directly in Galatians 5. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want ever. Or I would say you do not completely want what you do or do what you want ever. In any case, you are such a mixed being. You are an impure, mixed being, so am I, we all are. We don't completely do anything. We don't completely pray, we don't completely not pray, we don't completely do anything, because we're divided. The flesh warring against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, that's who we are. That's what Paul's describing here. He's a divided being. There's a struggle uh, between what he wants and what he doesn't want, what he loves, what he hates. There's a battle going on. And the root cause is sin in his members, sin in the flesh. All right, cycle one, verses 14 through 17, condition. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. That's his condition. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. That's the very verse we mentioned that was problematic. That causes a conflict between himself. Verse 15, 16. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Now notice here in this statement, sins of both omission and commission. And so those are the, broadly speaking, the two big categories of sin. It's right here in this statement. Look what he says. What I want to do, I do not do. Okay? So what are those things? Those things that the glorious, righteous, holy, good law of God tells them to do. Right? And for me, one of the clearest example, uh, examples of this is witnessing, sharing my faith. All right? We all want to do it, right? What holds us back? This right here is the number one thing that holds us back from evangelism. It's not lack of training. It's not that you're not prayed up. It's not that you're, you know, you're in the wrong church and they never talk about witnessing. It's none of that. This is why Christians don't share their faith for the most part, because of the sins of the flesh, because the very thing that we want to do, we do not do. We're, we're, we're held back. But conversely, what I hate, I do. So what's that referring to? What I hate, I do. So many people confess to, like, internet pornography or other struggles where they absolutely hate the thing itself. They say that as Christians, but yet they seem trapped by it. This verse will explain that. But it's not just that. There are other things, all right? Um, Like, let's take... Let's take the simplistic verse that's so beautiful, but you know, we don't really live it. Do everything without complaining or arguing, right? Do you guys like that verse? I like that, that's a good verse. What do you think? Would you guys all assent that that's, you love that verse, all right. How's it going for you? Do you wanna, yeah, all right. So you're like, I'm, I'm just telling you, I love the verse. All right, so would you say that if you, immerse yourself in that verse, do everything without complaining or arguing, all right? I'll, I'll just say something because I'm in the middle of two sermons on divorce and marriage, all right? Let's just talk to you married people, all right? Let's just talk about you guys, all right? You know, when was the last time you had one of those, what what do we call it, marital conversations? You know what I'm saying? Intense yeah, intense fellowship, <laughs> like, you know, you know, rolling up your sleeves and working on an issue, you know, whatever you want to call it, whatever, you know, a marital conversation. Um and you're like, all right, maybe you're not even thinking about Philippians 2.14 at that moment. You should be, but you're not. It's like, do everything about the complaining or arguing. It's like, well, my Bible doesn't say arguing. It says disputing. It's <laughs> like, all right, whatever. Whatever you need to do. Um, but, I mean, it's just, that's a, it's a sin. All right, any Christian would say, look, if, if I look at those two things, complaining and arguing, you could say, based on this verse, I hate them. I would like to live the rest of my life never doing them again. When I wrote the book on contentment, I had a whole chapter on the evils of a murmuring heart. It is a big deal to murmur. It's a big deal to complain. God doesn't take it kindly. You guys remember the bronze serpent and all that? Remember, the, what Why did? What was the whole bronze serpent thing? Well, there were poisonous snakes in the camp, killing people. Why were they there? Because they were complaining about the manna. And God had had just about enough of that Remember? And so he sent poisonous snakes. Like don't, first of all, you wouldn't be eating the manna now if you had believed me enough to cross the Jordan and enter the Promised Land. You wouldn't be in your third year of manna. So don't complain to me when because of your own sinful unbelief, you had to turn around and wander in the desert and eat manna for 40 years. So I'm not listening to it. So I came to the conclusion, complaining is a big sin. Then you could start praying. and say, Lord, I want you, please to show me times in my week when I complain. So, Wes, how would you define complaining? How would you, what would you, just give me a definition. What is it, complaining? So it's tied to providence, all right? No, it's not. I don't believe in providence. Yes, you do. You believe in God's sovereignty. It's tied to that. Something's happening in your life that you don't like. Is that a sin, that you don't like it? No, but it's a sin depending on what you do with it. You don't like what's happening to you right now. Complaining doesn't happen until you do what? Vocalize it, talk about it. That's what complaining is. You don't like what's happening in your life and you talk about it negatively. It's anti-praise, you know. It's the opposite of praise and thanksgiving. It's that you are saying, I don't like what's happening. Now, I know that in the Psalms, there are godly ways to pour out a complaint to God. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the sin of complaining. Anyway, the point's been made. You come to the conclusion, you say, that is a bad thing, and I'm, I'm, it's obvious to me that it's a problem in my life. From this point forward, for the rest, what's the date today? The rest of the month, all right? <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of the month, I'm not going to complain. All right, whatever. But imagine if you made some resolution that you're, you're going to work on complaining, whatever. Can you not see how quickly this verse is going to come to the fore? You're saying you hate it. You're saying you hate complaining. You're saying you can see that it dishonors God. You know that God hates it. God sent poisonous snakes because of it. You can see all that. You can see that you actually do it. Now you wanna make some changes and guess what happens? You're not able to do it. Because you don't, it's unbelievable how woven into your being complaining is. It's deeper than you ever thought. Same thing with arguing. It's deep, it's a deep problem. It's like it goes down almost to my genes. My spiritual genes, how much I am a prideful arguer. And no, it's not gonna take some Keswick moment so that from that point on I never complained or argued. That's not happening. So that's just an example. The very thing I hate, I do. All right? Uh, carnal anger. You could, you could think about parenting. How many times do your, your kids get under your skin? All right? Never, Pastor. We are a happy family. All right? Let me tell you what, I'll tell you right now, I've, I've, we're almost empty nesters. One thing I have learned about my kids, and uh, they've probably learned about me, whatever. You know how Psalm 139 says, oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Well, guess what? Your kids have too. <laughs> they have searched you and they know you. And they know how to get you. All right. They know how to get under your skin, they know how to do things. They also take a divide and conquer approach All right, with mom and dad. They have searched to know the, the mo- mom and they have searched to know dad and they know what to do to, you know. It's amazing. They're incredibly brilliant in that regard. For those of you with only little kids, you'll see what I'm talking about, all right? It's gonna come. But it is, it's a hard, th- and, and the, all right, so you, you resolve. A certain moment comes and you are carnal and use carnal anger Despite the fact that James says man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God, it will not help. It only makes things worse. You know that, and yet, it happened. You're like, all right, same thing like the resolution against complaining, argument. I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to use carnal anger in my parenting from now on. All right, there's no Keswick moment on this, friends. You're going to have to fight this the rest of your life. You have to fight the pride, the inconvenience, the fatigue. All of that that leads to outbursts of carnal anger. you got to fight it. you got to memorize scripture. you got to work on it. You've got to get your spouse to pray for you. It's not going to go away quickly. And this is just, how many sins are there like this? Sins of omission and commission. You can make a list of 40 on each side. And what Paul's saying here is he's saying the very thing I hate, I do. And the thing I want to do, I do not do. You know? And so there it is. And he says, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. The desire, like I will say that the law, do everything without complaining or arguing, is a good thing. I see it, it's beautiful, it's morally virtuous. I just can't do it. I want to, but I just can't. You know, I would like to give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for me in Christ Jesus. Great verse, right? I'm gonna give thanks no matter what happens but the very thing that you love, that you want to do, you just can't seem to do. And that's what we're dealing with here. And, and if I do what I do not want to do, sorry. Paul says, I agree that law is good. I see the beauty of it. <laughs> do, you, do you also, the more we get into the details here, do you not see how good Jesus is, that he lived a sinless life? Not a sinless day or week or month, a year, a sinless life. Isn't that incredible? He went through every single day surrounded by people who hated him and who who are abusing him and and misunderstanding him, and he never once sinned. It's incredible. And that's the righteousness that's imputed to you. Praise God. That's what you're standing in, not your own performance. But anyway, he says, I agree that the law is good. So, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is this inner tumor, this evil thing inside me called sin. And by the way, I do believe this is the point of all of it. You could simply ask, and I can ask you, do you believe that God does have the power, greater than any Keswick movement ever thought of, of instantly transforming you so that you will never sin again? Does he have that ability? Do you think that's going to happen to you? Yeah, that's called glorification. Now here's the question that comes, why doesn't he do it now? You ever wonder that? Like, why are you leaving me here to twist in the breeze? I mean, if this is what it's going to be like, why do I have to do the very thing I hate I do and all that? What what answer would you give? Why doesn't God do it now? Why does he want, and for you it might be, decades of this kind of mixed experience, decades of fighting sin like this. Why? What reason would you give? If he has the power to... Transform you and make you instantaneously perfect. Why doesn't he do it? Well, how, all right, I, I like it, but how does this glorify God? So it exalts Jesus when we see how hard it is to get through a single day without sinning. That exalts Jesus. I like it. That's good. Anyone else? Another reason? A testimony. What effect does it have on us if we're at this for a long time and we just know how true this Romans 7 is, true of us? What should that do to us? It should have a certain effect on us. It's humbling. humbling. I appreciate it. One thing, you know, if you're going to spend any length of time studying church history, you're going to have to take the good and leave the bad with every church hero, all of them. The more you learn about everybody from church history, there's going to be good and bad especially with Luther, right? (laughs) You know, I mean, you're going to take anything good. So I I appreciate that. So that's the good stuff you can take out of Keswick. I think you can get the same thing better from other movements or other conferences. Um, And it could be that Amy Carmichael, I I haven't studied her much. Uh, I have a devotional that I'm reading from Andrew Murray. I mean, it just has a certain flavor to it that I just expect. You know, I I know what it's going to sound like and and it doesn't do me any harm because I'm not looking for that decisive moment where it's gonna take, so I appreciate you saying that. But I I don't wanna go too quickly, because you said it almost like as a footnote. But no, it's humbling. How important is humbling for this whole thing? All right, how important do you think pride is? It's unbelievably important. God hates it. I mean, I'm going through Ezekiel right now, and it's like the reason that God destroys Egypt is the reason he destroys Babylon. It's because they're prideful. He's going after pride. So I find it's humbling. It's very, very humbling. How would that affect us as, as you're talking about witnessing? We're able to get right down there with a the non-Christian and say, I struggle with sin too. The, the difference is I'm forgiven. But I, I'm not arrogant. I don't consider myself any better than you. And you can say it with real conviction. You say, look, I, I sin too. But there is a difference in that I'm forgiven and I have an indwelling spirit. So I think that's... Another, another aspect of it, and I said this last time, it comes from 7.13. Um, it says, did that which is good be uh, produced... I'm doing it from memory, but I'll just better to read, it, read it. Hang on. All right. Um, did that which is good then become a death to me? By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin... It produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become might become utterly sinful. We talked about this last time, remember? Become. Become. Well, Sin isn't becoming anything. But it is in our minds, in our estimation, becoming more sinful than we ever thought it was. So I would think, imagine somebody living a very good Christian life in, with very healthy theology of justification, sanctification, and glorification toward the very end of their life, say, all right, you've had a long career now now of life on earth. On the topic of sin, what would you say about it? I hate it more than I can put into words. I've seen it at work in my life, in my family life, in my church. I've seen what it does and I hate it. Mission accomplished. You see what I'm saying? Mission accomplished. We wanted it at the tree and we're getting it. We're getting the education in evil. And you know what we find out about it? It's evil. And that's part of our conformity to Christ, that we would love righteousness and what? Hate evil or wickedness. Hate wickedness. And in heaven, you cannot hate what you know nothing about. It's not hatred. To literally know nothing about it, you cannot have any disaffection toward it. You have to be educated. And we will be educated in, in heaven about the history of evil. Not just our own, but 6,000 years of redemptive history of evil. And we will hate it. I think that's the point. So it's not that God wants you to fail, he doesn't. He's giving you in in Romans six through eight everything you need at any moment to succeed. But at the same time, the failure serves the purpose of glorifying God too, because we're humbled by it and we learn how evil evil is. Okay, let's keep going. (laughs) I remember early on in my Christian life, I had found like a secret, uh, a secret trick, all right? That didn't work. All right, so here's the trick. It says in 1 John that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we ask according to his will, he hears us, we have what we asked. So I zeroed in on a specific sin pattern that I was focusing on at that early stage of my Christian life, and I named it and claimed it, that that sin would never trouble me again from this moment forward. Cha-ching, right? Why didn't it work? Well, I guess based on the verbiage of 1 John, I didn't pray according to his will that silver bullet approach to that particular sin was not his will. His will was a different way for me to fight it. Does that make sense? So if it were that easy, I'm telling you, we could get this thing done tonight. You'd stay here, all right? We'd be like, give me a list. Let's, let's do First John on it and just knock them off, you know? <laughs> like a shooting gallery, and we'll just get them done. We'll like pop balloons and they're done, and you walk out of here holy. That would be awesome, but that's not how it's gonna go. All right, so that's cycle number one. Um, it's no longer I myself. By the way, do you not see how stunning that statement is? I don't do it anymore. It's no longer I who do it. That'd be like, whoa, wait a minute here. He's disavowing involvement here. No, he's not. But he's, the I that's speaking at the front part of verse 17 is his new nature in Christ. Does that make sense? It's his regenerate self The new identity in Christ doesn't sin, but it's sin living in me. What's the me in the second part? Well, that's the other, that's the body part. It's complex. 717, it's almost like, I I almost can't follow the verse. But as it is, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me. What's the me? The the body and sin living in me. But I, who am also inhabiting this this physical body, hate sin like Jesus does. That's how he's arguing. Does that make sense? I'm glad it doesn't, I don't understand it either. But there's the verse, 717. And by the way, it should not trouble you how complicated the specific details of this chapter is. You know what that tells you? Sin is essentially irrational and therefore can't be explained, right? Again, in my heaven book, I argue that in heaven, God will have and will give an explanation for all of the so-called adverse providences you ever knew about in your life, and then countless others. He will have a reason for all of them. Will you have a reason for any of your sins when he asks you why you did it? Do you see the point? God is rational. We, in our sin, sin is not. Did God have a reason for taking Job's 10 children? Will he have a reason? Did he give Job an explanation? No. But does he have a reason for what he did by giving Satan permission to do it? He had reasons. That's all I'm saying. God will have reasons for everything. We will have reasons for nothing when it comes to sin. And that's educational too, isn't it? It's essentially insane. It's irrational. Do you think it's rational for Satan to take God on and try to beat him? Do you think that that's a rational move? What are your thoughts? You're all shaking your head. I think it's stupid. I just think it's stupid. Thinking you can defeat the creator. You know, <laughs> that's, that's the origin of sin. Cycle number two, verses 18 through 20. Condition. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. So that's the flesh word. It's just very, very complicated, flesh. But that, that sinful nature, NIV goes with sinful nature, but I like the word flesh just because it just jars us and we just have to kind of try to figure out what it means. Nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. Conflict, 18 and 19. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. All right, so what do you think Paul means when he says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out? What does that mean to you? Does that mean Paul never does a good work? Does he do any good works? Okay, without any codicils. Does he in his life do any good works? Yes. If he doesn't do any good works, I would contend from John 15, he's not in the vine and therefore is a dead branch and will be burned up in the fire. If there is no good fruit, you are not alive. So apparently we do good works, but now you're saying not on your own. What do you mean then? How do we do good works? Only by the spirit. Do you see how in the end, the spirit ends up the hero of this whole drama? It is by the Spirit alone that you do a single good work. He gets the full credit. That's what he's saying here. On my own, in my own effort, I can't do anything good. Jesus said it, didn't he? Apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's what he means. I have the desire to do what is good. Where does that come from, by the way? The desire to do what is good, defined by the law, right? He has a desire to do what the law says is good. Where does the desire come from? Yeah. So in his new nature, in his regenerate nature, knowing that the law is good and beautiful and holy and righteous and all that, he then has a desire toward good things, but he can't consummate it. He can't act on it. That's what he's saying. So again, this is Paul speaking as a converted person. I have the desire to do what is good, but I, unaided, cannot carry it out. For what I do, in other words, my actual performance is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So it's the same thing he just said. If you actually look at my track record, it didn't go well. So think about that. Imagine this. Would you want to stand before God on the basis of your best Christian day, unaided, without Jesus' imputed righteousness, Just but you get to choose your best day and say, on that basis, I'll stand before you and be judged. Would you want to do that? So the best day you ever had isn't good enough. Think about that. So it's just a it's a it's a mixed bag. By the way, do you not see how incredibly patient God is with us? I mean, do you wonder why He entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation? What a we've made a hash of it, guys. We've been at it for 20 centuries. You know, how long would the angels have taken to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth? It's like I think later that week it would have been done, you know? <laughs> I mean, they just get stuff done. At any rate. Do not carry it out. This, the evil I keep on doing. Uh, then the cause. Again, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. It's the very same thing he just said. By the way, if you could, you know how he personifies sin and says the sin is living in him? What do you think it would look like if you could see it? I mean, would it be like some nasty, what what's that? Dark, Dark like a like a... Nasty, kind of green, kind of ugly, slimy monster, like the creature of the La- black lagoon. <laughs> Some subtle lurking beast. Anyway, but there it is. He personifies sin living in me that does it. Cycle number three, 21 through 23. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. What is that? What pictures I give you? Right there with me. Like on your shoulder, lurking. A, like me and my shadow, my evil shadow, just right there. All right, and and you know what I mean. I mean, let's just take something simple. Let's say you decide that tonight, when everything's done, you're going to spend half an hour praying for missions. Let's say, or for people in the church, or people that are hurting, and it's just it's just a good thing that you want to do. Jesus said to do it. Right, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father's unseen. Say you want to do that. First of all, don't tell me about it because then you'll lose your reward. But um, you're gonna just do it, all right? You're just gonna do it. So you do that, you go into your room, close the door, and you kneel down. How, does, how is this verse gonna be relevant for you at that moment? When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Ben, what do you think would happen if you decided you wanted to do that? So a distracted mind is evidence of this verse, in that case? You know, obviously evil thoughts, that could come in your mind. You have to fight for purity, maybe. Um, your, your body is going to start barking at you, especially the older you get. I found my lower back. I like to kneel and pray, but after a while. Then there's this other thing that happens, all right? I have amazing prayer times that go by like I don't even remember them at all. You know, I go down at six in the morning, I wrap up in a nice warm blanket and I kneel on a nice comfortable cushion. I bend over the couch. And man, that was the quickest half hour prayer. It was amazing. I don't remember any part of it, but I'm sure I must've prayed for everybody on my list. (laughs) But Peter, James, and John did the same thing in Gethsemane, remember? Spirit is willing, but the body, the flesh is weak. So you could get sleepy You know, there's all of these things that can happen. That's what I'm saying. Evil's right there with you. It's you can't shake it. Yeah, you could do well, and doing well, you fall into sin. You know? What do you think? Do you think uh, when Moses wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Now Moses was the humblest man on earth. What do you think? I mean, that's quite a moment there in redemptive history. You know. Is that a sinful verse or is it just a true statement? I just want you to know, of all the people on the face of the earth, I'm the humblest. Right? Now. I don't know. It's an interesting verse. At any rate, um, evil's right there. From my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. So that's where we're at. So we'll pick this up, God willing, uh, next time, and then move on, God willing, into chapter eight.